exploring the culture, the adventure, and the impact of martial arts. That's what we do at Kung Fu Podcast. I'm your host, Sifu T.W. Smith. I am so glad that you decided to join me today, where we're going to continue with the reviews and research of the book, Killing Art, The Untold History of Taekwondo by Mr. Alex Gillis. Before we get started, if it's your first time here at Kung Fu Podcast, I'd like to say welcome. You know, new folks are always welcome, irregardless of the reasons that you might practice your martial arts and irregardless of the style that you might try to practice. It's always important to remember that, you know, we don't have a prejudice about someone who practices for health or just a uh, philosophical way of life or for sport. You know, there's all different reasons why people might get involved into their martial arts, and I usually go through about six or seven of them. The only time there's some hiccups in that thought pattern is that when someone is practicing one thing but thinking that they're practicing something else. So if you're practicing for sport, then you might not realize that you're actually not practicing civilian self-defense, even though you are developing some of the same skills in some ways and other skills that you would never want to use. And as long as we keep that understanding, it is all good here. Everyone is welcome. And this program isn't an easy one. People like yourself, some of the finest and sharpest martial artists in the world, listen to this program. They have expectations and experience that require me to keep this program up to a standard. But so far, so good, because recently, just over there on iTunes, I got a review from Tablakai, who gave me a five-star review. In fact, all of my reviews for this program has been five stars, except for one early four-star. Tablakai wrote, quote, This show is informative, entertaining, and highly motivating, end quote. Thank you so much to Black Eye for taking your time and going over to iTunes to leave a review. That does mean a lot to me. And any time you take your time to do something like send me an email, put up a review, I appreciate it. Because one thing that you'll learn about me as I go through processes, and, uh, and if you ask any of my students, not too many things fall more important to me as far as my priority list than time. And I think I actually did a podcast on this one time over at the uh, Finding Your Path Through Kung Fu. But basically, it just boils down to a very simple understanding that time is a currency. Uh, And it's the only currency that you spend that you can never get back. Any other type of currency you might spend, gold, jewels, or money, you can usually replace it somehow. But an hour spent somewhere is never retrievable. It's already gone. And if you take your time to leave a review... I genuinely appreciate it. Now, if you use iTunes to leave a review, you should know that there are five iTunes stores spread across this world that I know of. I periodically go through and I check each one of them for reviews. So whether you're in Ireland, Asia, or Australia, leave a review on your iTunes store with the rating that you feel like I've earned. And that would also be true for Stitcher or any other platform that you might use. I would also like to take a moment and say thank you to Joseph, who left a donation over at PayPal. He wrote a message, and it says, I am impressed with your depth and humility. I am new to Kung Fu, Wing Chun, and new to your podcast. I am currently on a sabbatical with my family in Brazil, so I am making a small good-faith donation in indication of my appreciation for your quality podcast. I look forward to hearing more and supporting in the future. 
Thank you so much, Joseph. And something else that he mentioned there, I, I want to be very honest with you. There is no such thing as a small donation. Every little bit goes back to putting things either, whether it's in the uh, production or getting books to review from Amazon or things like that. So anytime that you can chip in, go to KungFuPodcast.com forward slash support. And anything you want to do is very, very appreciated. Before we go any further, I want to take about 15 seconds and let you know that today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, where you can get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial if you go to KungFuPodcast.com forward slash Audible. And they're going to have over 180,000 titles for you to pick from on your device, including the one that we're doing today, A Killing Art, The Untold History of Taekwondo, where you're going to learn about well-researched studies and interviews of the history of Taekwondo. Mr. Alex Gillis brings his investigative reporting skills into action, and he digs deep into more than just history. He pierces the veil of lies and myth and brings a lot to the table for you to look at. And as I mentioned lies and myths, that's a good segue as we transition into a topic that my good friend Ian Abernathy had on his form. And you can find all of Ian's work by going to KungFuPodcast.com forward slash Ian and it'll take you right to his website. The form thread that I just mentioned was titled, You Are Not a Black Belt. You Know It and We All Know It Too. And it's a good read. Near the end of this thread that goes into what makes a student and an instructor. I wrote in and asked if it was okay if I shared it, and he said yes. So we're going to start with the member named T. Wall, who writes, quote, What really chaps me is the laundry list of instructors claimed by those that only attend seminars. Attending a seminar or two and taking an hour class from a given instructor does not, in my book, equate to being that instructor's student. I think this falls in line with receiving a grade of any type based solely upon attendance at a seminar and actual grading notwithstanding. He continues by writing, I am in agreement with Ian regarding his list of what constitute a handout for Don grades as well. I'm drawn to wonder if this is just a product beginning to become more widely abused due to the growth of martial arts as a whole. I have seen the quid pro quo ranks done for quite some time now and try to avoid associating with those types as much as possible. For all the lip service regarding honesty and integrity, they sure give a poor demonstration of such. And this is where Ian responds. And he writes, Well, you know I'm totally with you there. Oh, well, that's my very poor Ian. He actually writes, I'm totally with you there. To be a student of someone takes a long-term commitment. I've been to lots of seminars, but I don't regard those seminar teachers as my instructors. An inspiration or a positive influence, but never an instructor. That title is reserved for those who have given me continual instruction over many years. I certainly have people I regard as students who initially came into contact with me through the seminars, but who, crucially, I have had a long-term relationship with after that. I don't regard everyone who has ever attended a seminar or two as a student. And most folks who have attended a couple of seminars would not regard me as one of their teachers either. It would be unethical and inaccurate to state otherwise. However, it is worse in my view when some seminar teachers knowingly recognize people as students 
and give grades on the back of that with little or no testing required. Putting it this way, if people are fully-fledged students after a couple of seminars and black belts not long after that, then we are guaranteed to have a, well, he blanks it out, but I think what he was going to say is that we are guaranteed to find a piss-poor system, a highly questionable ranking structure, or knowingly unethical behavior. Sometimes, all three. In a similar vein, a weird thing I've had is people I've never met claiming to have taught me too. In some cases, claiming to have taught me everything I now do, even though we have never actually met or even spoken. It's a bit of a slight to those people who actually did spend all those years working with me, who truly deserve the blame and credit. Although I guess it's a backhanded compliment that they see me as being worthy of false claiming. My students are my students, and my teachers are my teachers, and that's how it should work. That's the end of the quote in that particular thread. So my question to you is, what is your experience or point of view on this? I'm not from a black belt system. I came from a Chinese familial system. And it was approximately three years before you were even really considered a student, and several more after that to be considered a disciple. But I'm sure that we see the same thing on the Kung Fu side. In particular, some of the ones I see quite often are the charlatan Tai Chi or Qi Kung Wizard Weekend Certification Systems. But it would be like someone showing up and saying, Hey, I was at Sifu T.W. Smith Lama Style Hopgar Seminar, and now he's my teacher. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, I just trained you twice for six hours over a weekend. You're not really my student because I'm not going to hold you accountable at the same level that I would a student. And I'm not passing down any certifications through any sort of uh, weekend seminars, except for maybe an attendance. Now, one thing I know about Ian, and I always like this part about his work, is that he gets pretty pointy about verbiage, which I like. It really helps me kind of up my game in that area. I usually think of my high-level instructors as apprentices. And the word disciple is reserved for my closest students, the ones who could actually carry down some of my kung fu to future students. But as I look through the thesaurus, the word attendant seemed to resonate with me about the two to three time weekend seminar studier. For example, I recently learned the Surete Sword Combative Flow Drill as an attendant to Joe Pounder at the Dragon Society Symposium in Dallas, North Carolina. Now, I'm not his student, nor is he my Sifu, but I was very, very glad to attend his instructional seminar. He's an excellent teacher. So if you have thoughts or feelings about that, love to hear from you. Go to KungFuPodcast.com forward slash contact, and it'll take you to a little area that you can send me a note. And now we're going to get to the meat of the program. In this podcast, you're going to hear an interview with Mr. Alex Gillis, the author, and excerpts from the book, A Killing Art, The Untold History of Taekwondo. At Kung Fu Tea, dated October 31, 2012, Ben had an interview with the journalist Alex Gillis. The essay is titled, Alex Gillis Discusses Taekwondo and a Killing Art with Kung Fu Tea. Ben begins by writing, I had the opportunity to exchange emails with Alex and found him to be friendly and open. He clearly has a passion for his subject and is immensely knowledgeable. He agreed to drop by Kung Fu Tea 
and answer some questions about the process of writing this sort of history and the reception that the book has received. So the interview begins with Ben asking, how have Taekwondo practitioners, both in Korea and the rest of the world, received your book? Has it received a general positive reception? Has it affected your relationships with other individuals in the Taekwondo community? Mr. Gillis responds, Hundreds of people have sent me notes over the past four years, all of them positive about the English, Spanish, and German books. I haven't counted, but I estimate I received nearly 1,000 emails. Also, during book signings in the U.S., U.K., Canada, and Germany, I've spoken to thousands of people, and almost all the feedback has been positive, overwhelmingly so. Sure, there's been some negative comments that I've heard on blogs, but most of them have been anonymous. I haven't looked up the chat rooms, listservs, and blogs where I'm getting anonymously slagged, but I'm sure that they're out there somewhere. What I find incredible is that the major international Taekwondo organizations, especially in South Korea, have ignored my book, but their instructors and masters and some of the grandmasters have contacted me individually, almost as if they were doing something wrong in talking with me. The support has been over-the-top positive, but because people have been gossiping for decades, so many people knew parts of the true history, but a killing art brings together different strands of the history, which I now realize readers appreciate. I put seven years of work into that book ensuring that I got the facts right, and I footnoted heavily because I knew readers would say, what the hell, how does he know that? So then Ben asks, what was the most challenging aspects of researching a project like this? Was it difficult to get your sources to agree to give, on the record, interviews about such challenging topics? Mr. Gillis responds, The most challenging part of the research was finding solid proof that Secret Service agents, those who work for or with the Korean Central Intelligence Agency and North Korean Secret Service, were helping to run Taekwondo federations and that the agents slash instructors collaborated with the South and North Korean dictatorships during different decades. Also challenging was figuring out what the founders added to the art as opposed to simply stole from karate or takian, an older Korean martial art. It was difficult to get on-the-record interviews on these topics and others, but many masters and instructors participated when they realized that I knew a lot about the history. Interviews rise to the level when the interviewees know that one-liners or the party line, won't work. So, for example, telling a journalist that Taekwondo is 2,000 years old might fly with a local newspaper reporter who doesn't have a time to check his facts. But it didn't work on me, as I knew the truth from the background research. Taekwondo is only 50 or 60 years old, and it developed mainly from Japanese karate. However, if you type Taekwondo in Wikipedia or Google, you'll find the site state or imply 
that is hundreds or thousands of years old, and that they contain all sorts of drivel about ancient dynasties and Warang warriors. I'm empowered by the fact that well-known war heroes and super-athletes developed my martial art, not flowery, unnamed warriors. Ben asks, You have a background both as an investigative journalist and as a university instructor. Do you think that this book would have substantially been different if you'd been a pure historian? What skills did journalism allow you to bring to the table that might be missing in more academic writings on the martial arts? Mr. Gillis responds, Perhaps the book would have been different if a historian had tackled the topic. Perhaps a historian would have made it more abstract and less concrete and dramatic. It depends on the historian. I've read dramatic, concrete histories. My skills as an investigative journalist allow me to ask the right questions and to delve into topics that were deeper than those asked by news journalists. Also, with my research and interviews, I pushed myself to find engaging ways to present the facts and tell people stories, with storytelling that would go beyond the list of facts. Basically, I added heart and emotions where I could. Presenting General Choi's life is an example. He was a complex person, as most of us are, and I wanted to show why people thought he was a genius and a dictator, a generous man and a selfish one too, all at the same time. He seemed to be a megalomaniac and an extremely aggressive leader, but he had to seem that way when facing down homicidal dictators and rogue secret service agents who wanted to kidnap him and his pioneers. I have a lot of respect for him, but not for all of his actions. While presenting people like that in my book, I felt that I had to stick with the facts while adding complex emotions and content. Then Ben asks, In chapter 19 of your book, titled Reprieve, I could not help but be struck by the contrast between what you had written about and what you and your daughter actually experienced in your neighborhood Taekwondo school. Has there always been this disconnect between what was happening at the top of the sport and at the bottom? It seems hard to imagine that the chaos you described in the 1980s and the 1990s didn't deeply affect the lives and careers of many aspiring martial artists. Mr. Gillis responds, Yes, there has always been a disconnect between what happens at the top of a sport or martial art and what happens among instructors and students. From what I know, this occurs in many sports. Look at soccer and FIFA, for instance. Taekwondo practitioners typically had and have no idea how much corruption and cheating occurred in the Olympics, for instance. When coaches and athletes did discover the levels of cheating, many had to keep quiet in order to compete, hoping that they wouldn't be the next victims of branch trimming, which was the sophisticated cheating system that ensured the strongest fighters got eliminated in opening rounds at the Olympics. Careers and lives were deeply affected.
Ben asks, Well, it's been about four years since your book first came out. How are things looking in the Taekwondo world today? Have the governing bodies of the sport in Korea and abroad managed to clean up their act and live up to the promises for reform? Is the sport growing and healthy? Mr. Gillis responds, There's been a lot of promise about cleaning up their acts, being transparent and fair, but I'm not certain that the governing bodies have lived up to the promises. I keep hoping, though. Ben asks, What are the biggest trends you are seeing in the Korean martial arts today outside of the world of Taekwondo? Mr. Gillis says, The unacknowledged Taekwondo backgrounds of fighters in the MMA, UFC, and other popular sports. And then Ben closes by saying, I can see how that might be frustrating to a lot of individuals within the Taekwondo community. Thanks so much for stopping by. So now that we've taken an interview with Mr. Gillis, we've looked at the book review by Mr. Junkins, let's take some excerpts, some actual readings from the book itself, A Killing Art, The Untold Story of Taekwondo. First, the introduction. And it says, quote, Taekwondo leads to enlightenment along one of five paths. Some people believe, but I have my doubts. I am stuck on the path of courtesy, which instructors in small gyms around the world know well, but which is largely ignored by Taekwondo leaders. This book is about courtesy, integrity, perseverance, self-control, and indomitable spirit, the tenets of Taekwondo. A true story about a martial art that I love, in spite of its bizarre and wondrous history. Most of us have heard about Taekwondo through children, whose laughter dominates evening and weekend classes in North America. But the art hides a history of Secret Service agents, gangsterism, and fearsome weaponry, as one of its founders, Chung Hung Hai, once described it. He wrote, referring to General Choi, that Taekwondo is able to take lives easily when needed by defending and attacking 72 vital spots using 16 well-trained parts of the body. Choi had a fondness for numbers. He liked their devastating precision. Few young people in the Olympic Taekwondo know about Choi, who more than anyone deserves the label founder in this martial art. Other, air quote, founders, and there are many, erased him from the popular record long ago. A killing art restores him and his pioneers to their place in Taekwondo history. This book is based on Choi's memoirs, the memoirs of Kim Ung-yong, who is a founder of the Olympic Taekwondo, and on the hundreds of interviews and documents that I list in the footnotes and bibliography. Now, the next excerpt is from Chapter 1. It's called Men of the Sacred Bone. Mr. Gillis writes, quote, When I need a break from my life, when I need to confront stress, fear, and madness, I flee to a place of power, to a room where meditation meets brute force. I climb to a third-floor studio or descend to a basement gym. And as I feel a hardwood floor or a padded cement slab under my bare feet, I smell the sweat and effort of those who came before me. 
I hear their laughter and yells, and occasionally I remember the blood that fell. I find reprieve in sweat and struggle. This is not a hobby for everyone, and it is perhaps odd to call it a break, especially because the Korean martial art that I practice, Taekwondo, is extremely difficult to master and can lead to real breaks, bone breaks. Its creators embedded innumerable tests within its techniques, but the training is usually safe, and I always look forward to going. I walk into my dojong, the Korean name for martial arts gym, hoping that my instructor, Mr. Devecchia, will be there with his old stories and wisdoms, that Floyd will be stretching and preparing for one of his spectacular jumping front kicks, that Mark will show us the mid-air split kick once again, and that Martin will push us with his spirited sparring at the end of class. Anyone can begin the fundamentals of the art, but few can stick with it as these men have. I began Taekwondo when I was a teenager, 25 years ago, when the art peaked in many ways. And I met these martial artists over the decades as the physical moves hardened my muscles and strengthened my heart and mind. The Koreans who created the martial art consciously set out to strengthen individuals and eventually entire nations. Taekwondo is an art of self-defense, but if you enter the closed rooms of his history, you will realize that it is the art of killing and of practice with care and intent, an art of empowerment. It can empower more than the body. The best martial artists apply physical techniques to mental states. They can erode or raise emotional substrata. They can build or destroy reputations, careers, friends, families, and countries. The complex paths that they take, for better or worse, often depend on age-old loyalties and newfound betrayals. I discovered this the hard way many years ago, on April the 20th, 2001, in the year of the snake. I walked into the Novotel Hotel in Toronto, Canada, to wait for the father of Taekwondo, General Choi Hung Hai, who would lead a three-day seminar for black belts. I was naive then and revered the 82-year-old Choi and the other founding members of Taekwondo, including a man named Kim Ung Young. And I felt intimidated walking into the seminar room, partly because Choi was a hard taskmaster. He had become a major general in the South Korean Army at the age of 33. And even though he had retired from the military in 1962, he was still known as the general. He and his men had sacrificed their bodies, careers, and families to perfect a martial art now practiced by more than 70 million people in nearly 180 countries. I can picture the first day of his 2001 seminar as if it were today. I wait in the Amsterdam room of the Novotel with 100 black belts from the United States, Canada, Chile, Peru, Paraguay, Uruguay, Argentina, and Honduras. Standing among the bowing, whispering martial artists, I feel as though I could be waiting within a palace of the Chozon dynasty in 1394. 
I imagine the ancient warriors waiting for dynastic rulers. The floors heated in the old style, invisible and underground. And the Korean geisha girls ready to sing the verses that praise Confucian values and sagacious leaders. The general and his men are extremely late, however. He is upstairs, he is upstairs talking and arguing with his son and the masters and grandmasters who will help during this seminar. These men once fought, parted, and threatened to kill one another over politics and, in some cases, over personal matters. But the masters and grandmasters know they owe their fortunes and reputations to the general, and everyone is trying to reconcile past threats with present ambitions. A little further down in the chapter, Mr. Gillis brings a broader political scope into view, and he says that General Choi has a mission to reunify North and South Korea by merging his North Korea-based Taekwondo with the South Korean Olympic Taekwondo. So Mr. Gillis writes, quote, He does not want to take over all of the Taekwondo, and there are rumors that he will meet with Kim Un-yong, the president of the World Taekwondo Federation, the South Korean organization that runs Olympic Taekwondo. Kim is the general's enemy, but an enemy worth negotiating with because one of Kim's coughs is worth more than a thousand of our yells. Choi is the general, but Kim is the president. He is not in the room, but he is here in spirit. Kim began a patriotic career in the Korean CIA in a South Korean dictatorship in the 1960s. He borrowed the general's Taekwondo name in the 1970s, inserted it into the Olympics in the 1980s, and became one of the most powerful people in international sports in the 1990s. The only goal Kim has not achieved is immortality, and we have heard that he is working on that. North and South Korea are in the middle of negotiations, and part of the plan is to hold Taekwondo events in the autumn. Now let's jump down to the excerpts of Chapter 8. Kafka Would Have Cried, The East Berlin Incident. Mr. Gillis writes, Early on June 17, 1967, in West Germany, an official telephoned well-known Korean composer, Lee Song Young at his home in West Berlin and asked him to visit the South Korean embassy. Yun traveled to Bonn, and once he was inside the embassy, officials grabbed him, stuck him in an attic, and for two days accused him of being a spy for North Korea. The composer denied the charges, but officials transported him to Hamburg Airport and slipped him onto a Japanese airline plane bound for Seoul, even though he had no passport or plane ticket. Rumors of missing South Koreans trickled into a German police station after a letter arrived from a student studying at the University of Heidelberg. The letter explained that the student had found himself in the situation of K, the man in Franz Kafka's The Trial, a book that follows a man who was arrested and tried in court but never finds out the reasons why. When Korean agents arrived to detain the student, he tried to escape and discovered that they knew Taekwondo. Judging by the way, they roughed him up. By this time, 
Choi's brand of Taekwondo was well known in West Germany and had spread to 30 countries. The agents hustled the student onto a plane and deposited him in Seoul, where South Korea put him on trial on trumped-up charges of treason. In West Germany, officials heard more stories. A Korean student in Heidelberg was invited to dinner and kidnapped. A lecturer vanished from a Frankfurt University. A doctor, painter, poet, and several newspaper reporters had gone missing. All of them Korean Germans. In total, more than 45 Koreans were missing from Germany, 8 from France, and 143 from Austria, the U.S., the U.K., Australia, and South Korea. What's going on? A Korean spy chief in Germany knew Yang Doo-wan was hiding undercover as an embassy official and leading the German part of an operation to arrest students and artists that the South Korean dictatorship disliked. To help with this operation, he imported 50 extra agents and recruited Korean Taekwondo instructors and Korean miners. The miners have been introducing Taekwondo to Europe since 1963. This was the turbulent 1960s. Anti-Vietnam War students were demonstrating. The Cold War was peaking. And the KCIA had made up allegations that students in Europe were moonlighting as North Korean spies. The KCIA flew the abductees from Germany to South Korea, where agents deposited them in Namsan, a wooded hill in the center of Seoul that contained the KCIA headquarters, the basement of which was equipped with torture devices. Choi eventually discovered that two of his men were involved in the mass abductions. During the week of the kidnappings, 31-year-old Kim Kwang-il, a KCIA operative and Taekwondo pioneer and instructor who had lived in Stuttgart for years, had traveled 600 miles from city to city, showing Korean officials where students lived. Lee Gai-hun, a second Taekwondo pioneer who was involved, was a KCI agent at the end of 1966 and an executive of Choi's International Taekwondo Federation. In Dusseldorf, West Germany, one student managed to escape on the way to the airport and stumble into a police station, where he filed a desperate report. The German police were baffled. Mass kidnappings? Women luring students to abductions? Martial artists forcing people into cars? The police were not aware that the German and American secret services had allowed the Koreans to carry out the mission. However, escapees and media coverage forced Germany to issue an official protest, calling the operation, quote, a grave breach of international law, end quote, and offering police protection to the remaining 4,200 South Koreans in the country. The kidnappings were dubbed the East Berlin Incident because the South Korean government had made up lies about students visiting North Korean agents for espionage training in East Berlin, which was communist at the time.
As news of the international scandal spread around the world, South Korean dictator Park Chung-hee faced a barrage of criticism, and he was livid. The KCIA was supposed to quietly encourage suspected communists to fly to Seoul. But the world now saw thuggishness, usually only associated with North Korea. As the scandal grew, Germany expelled three South Korean diplomats and suspended aid to South Korea. Police arrested a Korean miner and Taekwondo instructor, Kim Kwang-il, and France formally protested South Korea, where an uproar had begun, partly because of the kidnapping of a composer, Lee Sung-young. I have some more on this particular work, but I'm going to save it for a later date. Mr. Gillis has already asked me if I was going to focus more on this area in the future, and I said I'd be glad to. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast, where we looked at Ian's forum, where they were uh, discussing what it's like to be claiming to be a student or an instructor of someone. We took the interview with Mr. Alex Gillis. Then we had excerpts that included the Korean CIA, kidnappings, and much more. I want to say thank you to Mr. Gillis because I know he's listening. For letting me share your work here with this international audience, and don't forget that as a listener to Kung Fu Podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you an opportunity to check out their services. One of the books on Audible is the one we just reviewed, A Killer Art: The Untold History of Taekwondo. There are several books at Audible that I have referenced here, and in fact, I'm working on a couple of more. To download your free audiobook today. Just go to kungfupodcast.com/audible. Exploring the culture, the adventure, and the impact of martial arts. Thank you so much for joining me today as we looked at and closed out the review of a killer art book by Mr. Alex Gillis. If you'd like to support this program, like Joseph did with PayPal. Or using my iTunes and Amazon links so that you can shop at no additional cost to you, I greatly appreciate it. You can go to kungfupodcast.com/support. The next episode, we're going to start looking at the cultural event of lion dancing and why and how is it interwoven into some versions of Chinese martial arts.、I、have several essays on it, but we're going to start with our trustworthy good friend, Mr. Ph.D. Ben Junkins, where he wrote an essay titled. Lion dancing, youth violence, and the need for theory in Chinese martial studies. This is Sifu T. W. Smith, and I'll be talking with you again soon.